This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good afternoon, this is Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. Determined to prevent the traditional weaving skills of her homeland from being lost forever, Jennifer P. Lingi spent many years visiting the kampongs of Sabah, staying with the elderly craftsmen and women in an effort to better understand the many stages of basket making and the lifestyles of the artisans who create them. While studying the lifestyles of the various communities, she also learned about the extent to which their handicrafts reflect their everyday preoccupations and collective values. Her book, The Kampong Legacy, a journal of Sabah's traditional baskets, is an illustrated documentation of the amazing artistry that has been practiced in the kampongs for centuries and aims to document and in some way preserve these cultural practices which are in danger of disappearing. Jennifer, who is an artist, she's also the former director of Sabah Art Gallery, joins me now to share more. Welcome, Jennifer. How are you today? Fine. Thank you, Juliet. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today. So off the bat, I just want to say that your exhibition, Bako, is currently ongoing uh, at the Godown. I went to visit it with my family a couple of weeks ago. Absolutely beautiful, oh, you know. Thank you. Really lovely collection. And we want to talk about that. But for now, you know, I just want to get to know you a little bit better, Jennifer. So, of course, you were born and raised in Kota Kinabalu. I was reading you always wanted to be an artist. Um, talk to me about your early years, you know, about your parents. So they were very nurturing of your interest in the arts. Yes, yes. Um, I was, I'm very uh, grateful that I have parents who could see or, or who were always um, encouraging of what we were interested in. And I've said it to some people who have young children because my father could see that I was interested in art. So he would always do, sometimes he'd give us like an art competition and give you <laughs> 20 cents if you win it kind of thing. Um, and my sister, my other sister loved uh, math. She was always doing a lot of math and my father managed to sort of somehow uh, encouraged her to, to go to the banking world and mm-hmm. she became a banker. Okay. Um, so that's the wonderful thing about par- parents guiding and if they're aware of what the children are interested in. So I love drawing. I just f- felt it was just something that I enjoyed doing, which I think most kids generally do. Mm-hmm. Um, but at one point I told my dad I wanted to be an artist. And then he said, well, you can't survive as an artist. You're a f- girl, you're in Sabah. Uh, so he then, at some point, he, I think like a, got a brochure from the British Council, I remember. Um, and then he then said, well, you can do this instead. It's architecture. Mm-hmm. Now, there, there's no architects in my family at the time. And uh, I thought, well, I read through the brochure and it had art in it. So I thought, okay, I'll do that. <laughs> but it didn't yeah. happen till obviously much later. This was when I was young. And um Unfortunately, my father never really saw me becoming an architect because he died when I was in my uh, when I was doing my form six, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. I got a scholarship after that with my f- form six result. I got a state scholarship, and I chose architecture, and I got it. I think at the time, it was apparently a, a subject that was encouraged because obviously that time they were trying to be, you know engineering and all this was quite popular. I remember I was like I think. The only girl out of four who were given uh, that, I think, that was what I I recall. Um, So I was very lucky. Even though I'm not a great student, I wasn't an A student at at school. Mm -hmm. Um, When I went to England, I think because I I loved the subject, I loved the the combination of science and arts, even though I was not a science person, um, I I passed it. So that's why I always tell people it's not about being very smart. Mm. It's about 
understanding something and loving it. And, and, and at university, if you can get through that, then that's good. Yeah. Yeah, and I like the fact that you know, you know, even your dad seeing you know the diverse interests of his daughters, like encouraged it right in different ways. You know, he didn't sort of like shut you down and say no, you cannot be an artist. You know, find a way to work with your art, isn't it? Yes, yeah. that's true. And, that's and, true. And that's important for parents to do. I, I yes. feel right. Yes, yes, absolutely. Because parents have the hindsight of things, and yeah. that's where the children will be guided. If mm-hmm. you're a good parent, and that's the, the way you can help your children. And of course, you went over to the UK, as you mentioned. Uh, you eventually uh, you graduated as an artist. Um, I think you went to Oxford Brooks University. You spent 20 years abroad, uh, both in London and Brunei, am I correct? Yes, correct. Yeah, correct. Talk, talk to me a little bit about your years abroad. Yeah, I, because I, I was in England for about eight years. I was studying and then I worked uh, for uh, for a year in a, as an intern um, at the in London mm-hmm. at the uh, education centre in the buildings department. That was in a, a government uh, um, organisation and then a private architectural firm in near Tottenham Court Road, uh, Damon Lock Grabowski uh, is called. Funnily, funnily, during this recent um, Bakul exhibition, mm-hmm. there was an, an, uh, a Malaysian girl whom I, who was also interning in England, in London, in that same uh, office wow. 30 years ago. And we met because wow. of the buckle. Isn't that amazing? That's lovely. Um, and after that, I got married. I married... Uh, uh, my husband was also a student at, in the architectural school. We got married and then I had to come back to Malaysia because of my scholarship. So that made the decision of where to live easier. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he couldn't get work in Sabah because he, he needed a work permit. So we both went to Brunei and we worked there. Uh, in uh, We both worked in separate architectural firms. for twelve. Uh, for, we were there for 12 years and then that's when we decided to come back because I thought it was time that we... I wanted to raise the children in, in uh, Sabah. In Sabah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, And I wanted to ask you, sorry, I missed asking you about, you know, your growing up years in Sabah, you know, in Kota Kinabalu. What, was those, what were those years like for you? I mean, did they uh, heavily influence, you know, who you became eventually? Yes, I, I believe so. Um, I lived in a... We, we all lived in a bamboo house. Bamboo when we were in Kenningau and then Sego, like Rumbia, ah. Rumah Rumbia, when we were in Pinampang, when we were closer to KK, up to the age of seven. So I think that that time, that living like that made it easy for me because with my what I've been doing with craft, I lived in many different villages. So, of course, after that, then, of course, I lived in uh, a timber house. We built a timber house, and then after that, I went to England. But, of course, before that, I ne- we, we, we didn't come. I mean, I didn't come. Uh, my family were not rich or, or, or well-off, but at the same time, my father worked with, um, he was a civil servant. He was a principal of a school. So he understood the importance of speaking English. Mm. So finally, he spoke to us in English. Mom spoke to us in Malay. They spoke in their own language. My father is Dusun Murut. My mother is uh, Kadazan, Chinese, Sino Kadazan. So they, but they spoke in their own language, in like either Kadazan or Dusun. So because of that, I am hopeless. I can't speak. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, terrible, right? Here I am sort of promoting culture. Yeah, I can't uh, speak um, my own language very well. But um, because of that, so I lived in England, obviously. So all those life experiences helped me to then, uh, wherever I am, I, I can adjust. So when I go back to the kampong, I live in conditions where the toilets are outside or mm. you shower using rainwater from a drum. Yeah, it yeah. didn't. 
you know, it was to me. I loved it because it brought me back to my childhood. Okay, okay. yeah, that's lovely. And and of course, you know, you are passionate about traditional material culture, right? And uh, I was reading that your interest in local crafts was sort of sparked through your mom's uh, involvement in a handicraft shop. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I, I, my my father died when my mom was forty seven, and they were both forty seven. And uh, at that time, mom never worked because my father was the bread earner, as most uh, yeah. uh, household was at the time. But luckily and thankfully for my auntie, my aunt Margaret, um, and my uncle Jack, they were very kind to my mom. And they, uh, they my father, uh, uncle was a businessman, and he opened a small uh, craft shop, like a pop-up shop, Surprisingly, at the museum, Sabah Museum. Oh, and, wow. and it was placed at the art gallery because art gallery and the Sabah Museum were, were one complex previously. So I would always visit mom when I was, I was studying in England when I came back from my summer holidays and I could see all this lovely craft. Yeah. I just loved them initially for their cute value, and, you know. But um, 20 years on, when I came back to uh, Sabah, my interest was still there because I always, I think I'm uh, aware that these things are part of us. Mm. This is who we are. This is our identity. I think I'm always very aware of it. But then I thought nobody really knew all the names. And if they were, it was very, you know, sketchy. People were not too, but they say, oh, I think it's like this. And sometimes I get mixed up which uh, ethnic group owns which fabric or which craft, uh, textile, you know, that kind of thing. So that's how it started from looking at what my mom was doing, and it slowly led to me going, okay, I'm going to just slowly find out what they call. But I did that through drawing. So mm. that's how this whole thing started. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, your book is a beautiful, I mean, it's got beautiful, it's almost like reading your journal. I mean, that's the kind of uh, feeling I got when I was looking through it, you know. So it's like I'm going on that uh, that journey with you, traveling to all the different um, um, villages. And that's what exactly what you did, right? You went to, uh, you went around Sabah, uh, you went to local villages, you spoke to the people. I mean, talk to me a little bit about those sorts of experiences, you know, all the different places that you visited uh, and getting to know the local artisans. Yeah, um, it was, as as I uh, mentioned earlier, it wasn't planned. Yeah. So that in itself caused, it was good and bad. Bad as in not many people, particularly people in the more formal institution, took me seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd go to maybe university or, 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 or museum, but they... It's not. It's not. It's just because I think for them they can't quite help me okay. because they don't know. It's not like I'm doing a thesis mm. and I need this, this, this information or something. Uh, people at the university, um, well, they were both uh, university and the museum were very uh, helpful. UMS. Uh, there was uh, Professor Ismail Ibrahim. There was Jacqueline Pugh Kittingan, who were very kind to me and who were telling me how I could look at something. And then museum also, there was a, a lady called Judith John Baptist. She was very kind. She borrowed me her book. She said, you can read this, you can read that. <laughs> and then I then tried to ask some other experts, uh, who well, people in the culture field. But a lot of them were very busy, as you know. And sometimes I can understand, it's not easy for you to, all right, basket, let's sit down, let me tell you, <laughs> because that's not their speciality too. Yeah. So in the end, I asked and asked and asked, and in the end, I got a little bit upset after a while. I thought, oh, well, never mind. I'll just have to do it my own way. And as it turned out, it was the best thing that happened to me because now, because I thought, I remembered saying to myself in a bit sort of like, I'm just going to do it my way now. And that was the best thing, like I said, because the book came out. And as you can see from the book, it's, it's neither academic nor is it, 
sort of, I guess, a very dry kind of thing because it's just what I felt like I wanted to record. If, yeah. if say, uh, the basket had a lovely story, then I'll write uh, the story, whatever story it is. Uh, and then if it didn't have any story, then I'll maybe look at the more uh, technical part of the, you know, or, or sometimes my own discovery of the craft itself. Mm-hmm. So when I started the journey, it just literally started with, uh, somebody actually, this is uh, the uh, town planning team. I was a consultant for a little while throughout this whole time when I was doing it. I was a part-time lecturer at the time, hence I had more time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I also served as a consultant for a while for a short project with the town planning in Sabah, town planning department. So Carolyn Tay, a, a friend of mine, was so lovely. She said, "Oh, we're going off to this. We're going to do this. Would you come? Because we, they do, they always visit lots of different uh, remote places." Uh, and I said, you can come with us. And then, I, of course, I pay, and I pay for accommodation or transport if they had space, obviously. Uh, and I would do my work whilst they go off and do the, their work. But my work was technically more sit with the people, look at what they were doing, and I would draw as I'm talking to them, which makes it really easy. Because mm-hmm. if you're looking at the person face-to-face, particularly if you're in the uh, kampung, right, in the village, they're a bit shy. Our people are quite shy. Okay. So... I started with just drawing purely for my own record. It was not, I had never had a book in my head, but I was just drawing. But as I was drawing, I could see a few things. One was I suddenly realized those everyday baskets that they have had more meaning than just, oh, just a basket. It also showed a lot like about their their way of living, how the craft represented some things, particularly for ritual or it had a lot of, um, and you know, layers of meaning, and and it shows their skill and their love for making it. And what I realized was, then, and as I was talking to them, like for example, my first drawing was a lady was taking all her jagung, her corn, vegetable out of her basket, which I tried to carry, and then nearly broke my back. It was about forty <laughs> kilos or thirty kilos. And then I started sketching it, and then we were talking. And then she said, and then I said, oh, so can your daughter? And I asked her how long has she been doing it. Then I said, can your daughter do it? Just, then she said, no, because it, it's too difficult. Can your granddaughter do it? No. As, and slowly, slowly, as I then started going on different, different journeys, unplanned journeys, the story was the same. Mm. I, I, I realized that they, uh, no one was carrying on. So I thought that was what uh, prompted me to think, right, then this has to be recorded. Yeah. Still, without a book in my head, it's just I thought, okay, I'll just record it in my way, which is drawing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's wonderful. And I want to talk a little bit more uh, about the book, but let's just go for a quick break, Jennifer. When we come back, let's talk about, uh, you know, how you put that all together, which is like a decade long, uh, you know, labor of love, which, you know, finally came out in the book, The Kampung Legacy. I'm speaking today to Jennifer P. Lingi. She's an artist. She's an author, architect. She's the former director of the Sabah Art Gallery. We're talking about, well, we're talking about her passion, of course. Uh, and one of it has been to document and in some way preserve the cultural practices which are fast disappearing over in Sabah. And this is to do with bus. Baskets, uh, and in her book, The Kampung Legacy, A Journal of Sabah's Traditional Baskets, is an illustrated documentation of this amazing artistry. We'll continue that discussion after this quick break. Keep it right here on Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. 
Welcome back. This is Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture. I'm Julia Jacobs. With me in the studio today, the lovely Jennifer P. Lingi. She's an artist, she's an author, architect, and she's also the former director of the Sabah Art Gallery. Her book, The Kampung Legacy, A Journal of Sabah's Traditional Basket, is an illustrated documentation of the artistry practiced in the kampungs of Sabah for centuries. It aims to document and in some ways preserve the cultural practices, which, as she mentioned, are in danger of disappearing. Uh, currently, over at the Godown, there is an exhibition of, you know, her own personal collection of baskets that's happening, that's ongoing now. We'll talk a little bit about that after this. Um, but Jennifer, you know, just going back to, uh, you know, that that warning, I suppose, right? It, it was quite a stark warning I was reading, right? You were saying that up to two thirds of around 60 different traditional basket designs of Sabah's indigenous communities would be lost in a matter of years. And I was reading that, you know, in your book, I think already some had already been lost, right? Yes. By the time the book came out. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, Um when I was traveling and living in different uh, kampung, different villages, I also noticed that not only were the baskets no longer being made, because a lot of the baskets started off as um, harvesting mm. paddy, uh, paddy baskets. But uh, obviously, um, at, when the, by the time I started my uh, journey, we were no longer harvesting paddy manually. Mm. We were using, in fact... Uh, machine harvesting had been started had started even in as early as the 60s. Okay. Apparently, they were already using harvesting machine. So you can imagine the need, the reason that the baskets came about was purely functional. Mm. As Ling Hao had named it aptly, it's everyday basket. It's a, it was not made for a special occasion, occasion yeah. except for the ones that are made as a wedding gift. So most of it were done at purely, you know, for functional purposes. Um, but not only were the basket disappearing, the people who were making them were also, you know, that their generation, once they go, then it's, um, it'll be gone. Yeah. Hence, uh, that was the reason why I thought it was important to document or, you know, put together all this information that I was privileged enough to be able to still gather mm-hmm. as I uh, had the time to do it. Mm, but I also... Yeah, what happened, uh, Juliet, is I, I realize now as I'm doing and doing, and it's a case of the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Yeah. And after forming some ideas in my head, yeah, we need to document or find a way to keep the thing going, I realize now that it's okay. It's okay that it disappears because it's just part of life. We can't force for the younger generation to make Baskets that were to use um, for a purpose which was mainly paddy planting and harvesting, right? So you can't force something onto a generation that cannot relate to that life. So it's just part of our history. So that I have been ready already to say, okay, because the thing about us humans, I notice, and I notice it, people, if you listen to what people always talk about, how the past is always wonderful, right? <laughs> like, oh, I was always so happy, you know, so nice. And I'm thinking sometimes I think we we always too nostalgic or we, we romanticize mm. our past. And yet, actually, our past are not that great all the time. And you'll only remember the good times. So, we just have to be more aware that we don't have to romanticize something so much that we we feel so guilty every time that we're not making new baskets. Or you, you understand? I do, so I do, yes. That's why I thought the important thing, more importantly, is just document what you know. Document if 
if for any reason somebody in future would like, like now we want to know our history, then then that's that's your contribution to that knowledge. Yeah. So, I but but of course, as you said, um, and, and you found out as well that the the sixty eight baskets. I actually went through again each one because every time I tell them, I said, yeah, almost half of them is gone. I checked and definitely out of 68 that's been exhibited, 28 is no longer being made, for mm-hmm. sure not being made. Mm-hmm. But then the other uh, the other ones the other ones are there. It doesn't mean that they are being made all the time. You can still get somebody to make them and maybe there is someone who can make them, but that person, I know most of them are already 60 or, you know, um, most of them, not all. Um, so that means that uh, skill will also be gone. Yeah. Hence, the basket will not be made again. But for the folks, for the artisans themselves, right? For for the people, and I, I use the word artisans, but like you said, it's actually just every day. Exactly. I'm not even. I'm using exactly. the wrong word, right? It's just even part of even them. for me, I feel guilty too to use say the word craft. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm sure they don't see it as craft, right? Yeah. And yeah. yeah, so artisan and craft, the word sounds very grand and yeah. very, right? Yeah. It's coming from yeah. our sort of, because it looks so grand to yes. us, right? We, yes. To me, it's a thing of beauty. Yes. To yes. them, it's it's something that uh, I just use, right? It's, yes. my, it's part of my everyday. True. But yeah. they are beautiful. They are absolutely, right? absolutely beautiful. absolutely beautiful. Yeah. 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 And and I mean, that skill, of course, of making it. So like, you know, the, the exhibition, of course, which is ongoing, you know, we get to see uh, from your own personal collection, as I keep mentioning, um, you know, the the kind of craft that goes into it, the kind of like, um, it's not easy to make, right? And that's something that you also discovered, you know, when you were there uh, speaking to the to, to the the people who were making it. I mean, talk to us a little bit about, uh, you know, how they go about, uh, I guess, des- even designing it, right? Because some of them have very intricate designs. Yeah. Um, and talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, funnily, people always say, oh, so you know, you know how to weave. <laughs> I, said, I can't weave to save my life. Um <laughs> Even drawing is hard enough. <laughs> what more weaving, right? Yeah. The amazing thing is the knowledge and skill that they have. Their knowledge of the forest, I think the jungle, is what makes them very special. Um, and this is what I hope the exhibition will also uh, bring people to re- to remind people yeah. that that these things come uh, from the woods, you know, from the forest, forest from the jungle. Yeah. If you look at the Go Down exhibition, you'll see there's a uh, at the entrance is a whole bunch of like bamboo and rattans. Right, people yeah. thought, in, some people thought that was just part of Godown's interior look. But I said, no, we brought that in. Uh, Wan Yi was the one who uh, somehow orchestrated all that and brought that there. So I, I tell people, look, these are the trees, the plants, and what you see here all came from here. It's crazy. It's uh, crazy. Yeah, and yeah. then the knowledge of making it is it's also incredible. They still use uh, method... Uh, of like coloring it, dyeing it, using their fingers, using a soot that they gather from uh, a lit sort of lamp, their lighter lamp with a condensed milk tin okay. to get the soot because it's a lot finer. And they mix it with a tree bark juice, a particular tree bark. And that's all. It's literally the juice and the soot. Wow. And the juice apparently is the sealer. They say, mati, you know, and that color will last for like 80, 100 years. Isn't that amazing? That's crazy. And they apply it with their fingers still, and they refuse to use brush. I keep saying, don't you, you know, isn't it easier? Mm. But that's the amazing thing about uh, how they make it. And it takes a long time. I once went with a group where we went three hours up to get the bamboo and rattan and came down. That's a whole day gone. So the next day, then they'll prepare and 
preparing it is also another skill. So I always say in order for, to be a, a craftsman uh, for basket, uh, you, you need uh, uh, the three skills. One is the you know be able to collect the material because mm-hmm. that's a skill in itself. The rattans have so many thorns. There's a way of like taking it and rolling it without hurting yourself so much because it's really thorny. Okay. They, they, what they do is they, apparently they turn it around a tree, a trunk, to get rid of the, oh, yeah, to shed it, off yeah. the thorns. So obviously collecting the bamboo, you need big vehicles to bring it back as well. So it's really hard work. So And then the, the, the peeling and peeling and, until you get that very thin piece so that you'll be able to weave it. That is already off-putting. That's stage one already, right? <laughs> off-putting. Second stage is doing the design. Now, the amazing thing is when you look at all those baskets, they each represent a different ethnic group or a sub-ethnic group. They could be both murut, but they are, they are different sub-ethnic and they'll also be different. Okay. In Sabah, we have 35 official ethnic group. We call them ethnic group, not tribes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Officially, that's you know what we uh, call them. So, thirty-five ethnic groups in Sabah, and two hundred and seventeen sub-ethnic group. Dusun alone have got about seventy-nine sub-ethnic group. So, imagine the complexity of that, and how amazing that is. And every single ethnic group are very um, consistent in their design. They never copy. If they do copy, it'll just be in the details, like the the top finishing. Isn't that amazing? That because is. it goes to show how they are very clear about what they, their ethnic group represent. Mm-hmm. And, and I, they're identity. respectful that they don't also copy. The only thing that been, I think if you want to use it, copy is the uh, pattern sometimes, motif and patterns uh, they will share. I have been told by some uh, requested by some sub-ethnic of a Murut group. They say, can you please like, can you please do a, a, a book just on us? Because, you know, the other Murut people, they are using our design. Oh, no. <laughs> so, but I don't know who's true, right? Yeah, but yeah. it goes to show how they are very uh, protective as well of their, of proud, their yeah. Yeah, design motif. And I had a wonderful friend I just met who's called Marilyn, Dr. Marilyn uh, Davy Ball. She is an English uh, uh, anthropologist. She is an expert uh, on Orang Ulu and Penan, Sarawak. And when she came, she said, she said, it's amazing. She said, there is no crossover. I see. Except for some border, obviously, when they are in border, right? Because it's it's border on plan, on map that we see, but in on land, in reality, there is no border, yeah. right? Like when I was in Long Pasia, which is the border of Sabah, the southern tip of Sabah, you can just literally walk across to go to Sarawak. So, so that you can imagine if somebody bring a basket and they bring it up, you think, oh, that's ours. You forget that, you know. Yeah. So, but Dr. Marilyn said um, there is no um, there is no uh, similarity. Okay. So I that makes it great because that makes it obviously uh, any kind of documentation easy mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. so you know okay that's Sarawak this is Sabah you know yeah and it's sort of a I guess a mark of their identity as well mm, would I absolutely. be right to say that yeah. yeah absolutely they are very um, aware of of who they are what they stand for and I think that's what I like about doing the documentation is not just looking at the object itself mm-hmm. but what the object represents so they're very clear, you know, about 
this basket is for weddings. When we have weddings, we use that. And this we use for that kind of thing. So um, like this paddy is purely for harvesting. This one is for paddy seeds. Right. Uh, so it, it's quite nice. It's quite specific as well, okay. uh, the, the baskets, what they use for. Okay, okay. And yeah. You know, a lot of us like mourn the fact that oh, okay, uh, it's a dying, is dying, and we're not going to see it again. But you, you know, you're you're seeing it as that's just part of life, right? Mm. That's just the natural way of, of going. But in terms of you know what you've documented, right? What more do you think can be done, perhaps at a grassroots level, uh, to to sort of promote um, cultural resource protection, you know, and, and involve maybe local people mm. in in preserving and and I guess you know sort of maintaining the objects that inform their lives. Is that something that you think is important? Mm, mm. I, I definitely. Do. Um, I think it's very important we, our own people, uh, actually do the documentation ourselves. A lot that the reason I started, I think I wanted to turn it into a book, because when I came back, I, I realized a lot of the really serious books about how things documented were not done by, is done by people who came to our country. Mm. And I'm very grateful because they're obviously very um particular about documenting, but of course, it will only be from their point of view. Right. Somehow, if it's if you're not from that place, like imagine me documenting something from England or Africa. I'm not African, I'm not English. I cannot feel what truly is needs to be said. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel it's important that we ourselves make a point to document our own stories so it will be more real. Mm-hmm. Um, when I go uh, to all the villages as well, I write exactly what they tell me. Sometimes I will insert what is my interpretation of what they say. Um, but then it becomes more true. Mm. Actually, it's very easy. It's easier to actually uh, do a documentation, what they call raw documentation. That's so much easier, right? <laughs> Rather than you having to come back and then think, right, how am I going to word this? Mm. That's going to make it difficult and you're going to change the whole thing. So that is definitely one thing uh, we can do um, to do more document documentation. The other one, I think, is uh, people obviously come to me and say, yeah, do you sell craft? And, you know, those are another thing that people say, yeah, if you sell. I was also at, that, at some point thinking, yeah, and, and I still think that if you can sell the craft, then the younger generation will think, ah, my mom went all the way up to the, uh, the hills, come down, prepare the thing, make it. They can sell that thing for 100 ringgit, say. Right. Then the, 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 the child will say, okay, I want to do that. Or they can sell it for 300 ringgit. But at, the, at this moment, it's only selling for, you know, 50 ringgit, 30 mm-hmm. ringgit. Okay. Um, it's getting better. There are some who are already quite good, so that's good. But all I'm saying is if you turn it into a craft industry, that's a whole new game. And this is where uh, I do want to say... Uh, that that it has to be dealt respectfully because you see for the people in the kampong they they make this basket when they need it right mm-hmm. oh the harvesting is coming we need two more tadang because we only have one say so they make it which means once in a year or once in six months maybe once in three months now if you turn into business i come to you and i say i need a hundred baskets i'll come back next month it yeah. doesn't happen and what I always hear people tell me is they said, yeah, but Orang Kampung, they're very lazy. Oh. But actually, because, 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 and they say, they're unreliable. Because they say, I ordered 100 when I went, they only had 50. And they keep telling me, okay, okay. But that's the problem. They're not lazy. They don't have, you see, when you order 100 from them, when previously they only, you know, made when they have time waiting for the paddy to, to ripen, yeah. 
you have changed the dynamics of their relationship to that basket, right? So what I'm saying is when uh, a craft entrepreneur, uh, NGO, when they want to go and up, just go and buy what they have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you do want to, to say you make 100, I want to buy 100, sit down with the uh, kampong people and tell them, this is business. Mm. So it's a different thing. It's not like when you have free time you make, this is business. Another thing I, I also tell them, please don't use the word help. There's this thing that us city folks, and particularly people who are asking for grants and all, a lot of things, they will go and, and they, they say, oh, we're here to help. Or sometimes they say, oh, you know, we try to help the kampung people, but they were really not grateful. I said, because you have used the word help. I said, when the definition of help is when you give something to someone and you don't get anything in return. When you are taking the basket, you give them money, that's business. So I tell them, I said, don't go around saying you're helping. You are actually helping yourself to make more money because it's a business that you like. You could do any other thing, but you like that because you know craft is quite popular. So don't say you're helping. You have to be honest, right? That's for the craft entrepreneurs. But I also tell the the people in the village, you have to realize if you want your children to follow what you're doing, you don't want them to go to the uh, city to work in hotels or shops, to be shop girl or shop boy. You have to help them, you know, um, and make them, and, and you have to start selling your, your craft for what it's worth. Something like that. You have to work with both, you know. Because I always say, before people used to always blame the middleman. They say, you know, they buy 10 ringgit, they can sell for 100 ringgit. They're very bad. Actually, I say this. I say, they, if you can buy something for 10 ringgit, you sell it for 100 ringgit or 1,000 ringgit. That means you're a good businessman. But this is the thing. If you're a good businessman, I tell craft entrepreneurs, I say, if you can sell a thousand ringgit, perfect, wonderful. But I said, you keep buying it for 10 ringgit, eventually that craft will die because their children will not do something that can be sold only for 10 ringgit. So I said, you also have to think, if you can sell something for a thousand ringgit, buy it today, or if you can sell it for a hundred ringgit, then make sure you give them 50 ringgit, at least 50 ringgit, right? Then it will be good. Then they'll see, oh, and you will keep the that that um, your product alive. Mm-hmm. The incentive is there. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So both parties have to be aware of that. Uh, the the village people have to know their value. The people who come to them don't exploit, and be honest. Mm-hmm. I think it can work if we want to keep still producing what is left of what can still be made. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, you know, this exhibition has been a wonderful sort of gateway, I think, for a lot of us to to learn about that. Um, we're just going to go for one more quick break, uh, Jennifer. When we come back, let's talk about, you know, uh, the, the exhibition that's going on uh, over at Godown, which is called Bakul Everyday Baskets from Sabah. I'm speaking today to Jennifer P. Lingi. She's an artist. She's a former director of the Sabah Art Gallery. She's an architect. She's also the author of the book, The Kampung Legacy, A Journal of Sabah's Traditional Baskets. We're talking about her work, you know, in documenting this amazing artistry uh, that's been practiced for centuries. We'll continue that discussion after this quick break. Keep it right here on Live and Learn on the Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9.
Welcome back. This is Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. In the studio with me today, Jennifer Pilingi. She's an artist. She's the former director of the Sabah Art Gallery. She's an architect. She is also the author of The Kampung Legacy, a journal of Sabah's traditional baskets, which was her labour of love, a 10-year uh, you know, journey uh, into documenting, learning about you know centuries-old um, craft of um, making baskets. Uh, it's her way of preserving some of the cultural practices which are in danger of disappearing. But, you know, as Jennifer says, that's just part of that of life, isn't it? So that's, um, but at least, you know, there's documentation thanks to all her work uh, going to the villages. And, you know, for us folks in KL, we've been very lucky to to see some of your collection, you know, firsthand uh, at the exhibition called Bakul, Everyday Baskets from Sabah. So as I mentioned, that's happening over in the Godown. I had the privilege of speaking to Wani and Emily, uh, co-founders of the Godown. I also spoke to Ling Hao, the, the curator of your exhibition. Um, you know, just remind us how, how all of this came to be, you know, how you guys uh, met and, you know, collaborated to to put this exhibition out there? Yeah, it was just a chance meeting. Uh, uh, Emily and I met first. I think we were introduced and then I met them together with Wanyi at the Go Down um, after I visited the Bukabuku exhibition mm. there, which is also an amazing exhibition. Um, and when I saw the vastness of the beautiful building and the rawness uh, uh, of the material that you could see, you know, the bricks and what have you. I loved it. Yeah. And I said to Emily, I said, yeah, this building can house all my baskets, jokingly, because I have a lot of baskets at home. Uh, and then um, Emily the event, uh, later on came to me and said, hey, Jennifer, what do you think if we had, uh, if we exhibited your baskets? And I was like, okay. I love to talk about my baskets. Actually, I have no shame. <laughs> I loved any excuse to talk about them. But I was, was a bit... I, I, all, all I said to her, because I met uh, Ling Hao once at the Bukabuku exhibition, and at the time I was drawing traditional houses in Langkawi mm. at the time, and I was telling him how I discovered all this beautiful work that was being done there. I could look at the traditional way of making houses with no nails. But it was just Ling Hao's way of talking to me and how he asked me a lot of questions that I really like the way he, he, his mind works, um, put it that way. So I just said to Emily, I said, Emily, if Ling Hao was my curator, then I'll agree to it. <laughs> I said, I'll only do it if Ling Hao was my curator. And thankfully, he agreed. I didn't think he would. I don't know why, but... Um, he did, so I'm very grateful for that happening. Okay, and his vision, you know, I mean, so I like I, I will be met at the at the exhibition, and it's um, uh, I think everyone is very mesmerized by how they all they all seem to be floating, right? They're all suspended um, in mid air, sort of, you know, uh, with sort of you can't really see the lines. Um, but actually, all of that has a function to it, right? It's how you would actually use the basket, the way it's positioned. It's not some sort of, as you mentioned, uh, off air. It's not some sort of Harry Potter things are floating in the air. You know, everything <laughs> has has an idea behind it, right? Yes. And I said Harry Potter jokingly because that was what people were talking about at the beginning when the <laughs> exhibition started. People said, wow, it's had this Harry Potter feel. Um, yeah, <laughs> Ling Hao was very clear in his, uh, from the very beginning, he said, we will hang the basket. So I thought, oh, great. I can hang like three in a row, you know, top to bottom. But he said, no, 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 no. You hang them, like put them where they will be on the body. I thought, okay. But of course, um, when you see it that way, it's just so lovely. And even I loved it because I could see parts of the basket that I don't normally see, which is usually at the back mm. of the basket. Mm -hmm. When, when you know, especially you see the ones that are tilted, where normally it will, it will tilt when you pour the rice down, yeah, right? Yeah, That's, yeah. That, and it's usually the, all the big baskets. So 
I believe Linghao's genius in in curating the whole uh, exhibition, obviously with the help of Emily and Wani's team, the Go Down team, and Kang Xiang, the uh, Linghao's loyal uh, assistant. He's such a lovely guy. Um, all all of this has come together uh, to be able to make it more. Uh, for for us, the you know, like like the uh, lay people, they can relate to something that could have been technically quite boring to other people who are not interested in right, baskets, yeah. right? Yeah. What more uh, traditional baskets? So that I think is the reason why it's also been become very popular. Uh, when I'm there every now and then, I do walkthroughs at the weekend, and when I can, I go in the weekday. I see like a bunch of young boys going, and I'm thinking. What would a young boys come to an exhibition of traditional basket? But of course, then I realized they love taking Instagrammable shots. And, and I was thinking, well, it doesn't matter. Whatever brings them there, mm-hmm. the important thing is they, they get to see it. At least they're exposed to, oh, this traditional basket? Oh, you mean we use that? Okay. You know, oh, bamboo, that's like, doesn't matter how much they want to go into, how deep they want to go into it. But as long as they see it, and I see lots of, I love it when I see little children, your children coming. <laughs> I was really happy just seeing them running around, around the basket. It, it, it's just such a lovely thing because it is all part of us. The bamboo, the rattan, the soil, the basket, that's where we are. And I feel the wonderful thing about this exhibition also is the conversation that is, it is a catalyst for different conversations yeah. uh, and and the thing that also popped up in my head as I was talking when I do my walkthrough is the fact that when you see the bamboo rattan you see the basket then you see see you don't need a lot of and they don't have any other it's between bamboo rattan and the basket it's just their hands yes. that's the thing the the in between that created all these beautiful baskets and there's no nails there's no stapler there's no glue Right? Yeah. And that's how clever they are. Yeah. And, and, you know, you see the sort of distinct hand of that individual. Um, I, I will use the word craftsperson again, but of the person who made it, isn't it? Yeah. In, in, each, in each basket that you yeah. see, which was really quite amazing for me. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, you know, any particular conversation that has been sparked that, I don't know, was surprising to you, you know, from uh, all the people that you've met? And because um, you've been giving talks, mm. you know, there have been a lot of uh, events happening on, for the weekends, mm. uh, even weaving uh, uh, craft shop, uh, crafts. Yeah. Workshops and yes. things like that, right? Mm, yes, I. One of the thing I, I think I felt as well was this. It was good for us to see this because I, I feel it answers quite a lot of like the questions that we have nowadays. I think so much of what's happening nowadays is we're we're always looking out to 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 get to fill us with our knowledge or information. We always made to think that if we, if you didn't study something, or you didn't go to university, or you didn't have academic knowledge or professional knowledge about something, then you are a victim or you're you're helpless. Mm. You know, like if you need, if you feel you have an illness, you have to go to the doctor, and you rely on the doctor's professional knowledge to tell you. But what I have learned when I looked at the people in the village through staying and living with them was they understood uh, the. Forest. They understood what was important, what they cannot take. They cannot cut the bamboo when it's not full, when it's full moon, you know. And people call it pantang or, you know, something that you don't do. But 
Actually, there's a lot of reasoning behind it. They understand how, what, when to take a particular food, uh, a plant, and they know which plant is medicinal. So the problem I feel with uh, how we live right now is we're so disconnected, whereas they were. Mm. So they lived actually a simple life. They they planted everything in their garden. Like I remember when I lived with this family, I would five o'clock the husband would be already out. He would come back with some vegetables at about six or, you know, and then we have breakfast. Then he'll go off again and then he'll tend to him and the wife and will then go then. And then we'll, then we'll have lunch later based on whether they, they find any fish or, you know, that kind of thing, right? Yeah. Um, so I knew when I was there, I thought, if there is a World War Three, I will die first. <laughs> the city folks will die first because the supermarkets will be closed yeah. uh, and they will live. So it's it's unfortunate. We are the ones who have brought what we think would be make their life better. You know, we think if you have education, you have uh, a lot of um, money, then you'll be happier. But they don't need uh, really. They don't, they already all their knowledge is already in them. Mm. Uh, they've learned this through their parents, their grandparents. The respect for forests. You don't cut trees too many. You cut only what you need. You know, we've heard all this, right? We know all this, but we forget it because the world still keeps telling us, you need this, you need that. If you're depressed, you need this medication, you need that medication. Everything in our life now, I believe, is geared towards just money, money, money. So what I like about what's happening here is, like I said, it brings back this conversation that you don't need much to live mm. and to be happy. Um Sometimes I come up with, I say, humans are really stupid. You know, we, we, we create um, machines to make our life easier. Just simple thing like, say, washing machine, dishwasher, you know, dryer. We, these are the simple things. They're more complicated stuff now. You can even buy, like, how to shred your uh, uh, ve- uh, vegetable a certain way. You can buy little tools, like gadgets, to cut your garlic. I'm thinking, well, you have your hands. Why do you? But, you know, we get lazy and we believe in these things. Yeah. Uh, but because of that, then we have more time, and then we get depressed because we don't know, we don't know what to do with the time. Mm. So something's wrong there, right? Whereas the people who truly understood their life, their community, how they have to work as a community to get bamboo, you cannot do it alone. Mm. You need to go together, carry the bamboo together. To do this, uh, to you know, to pr- pray for somebody when if somebody's sick, you know, um, they bring food because somebody will do a ritual to try and heal a child or something like that. Yeah. I'm, I'm not saying we don't go to the doctors or we don't. They are, you know, we can use that too. But all I'm saying is we we must learn from these people who are, who have the original wisdom, right, the innate uh, knowledge and wisdom. But if we don't do that, then then that will be forgotten. Yeah, 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 yeah. I understand what you're trying to say. You know, they've lived in harmony with you know with each other, but also with their land for generations, right? Mm. And and that I mean, we, we talk about the climate crisis, right? Mm. We talk about you know all the environmental crisis that we face, and there's a lot of us who say that we must go back to indigenous knowledge. You know, mm. that is so key in in finding solutions. Uh, you know, in getting their wisdom, as you said, mm. um, to identify when things are not right. When there's you know they will know. Let's say, for example, if uh, floods are coming, or mm. you know. The 
the floods have worsened or, uh, you know, the, the there's rains are coming earlier, things like yeah. that, right? So, you know, because they're so in tune with the land. So, mm. uh, you know, tapping in on that uh, that knowledge is really, really key, I, you know, mm. definitely. Um, I'm afraid we're just running out of time, uh, Jennifer, but I know there's a lot that you are currently working on. I mean, mm. can you sort of tell us some of the projects in the pipeline? Yeah, um, I actually, everything I do is just accidental. Uh, <laughs> nothing is planned, and as, as I did with the with the basket book as well. That also is another thing I wanted to tell people. Don't wait for funding to do something, because if you believe in something, you can always start, start, start it. And then the more you do and the more you, you know yourself and the more you tell people, people will come and help you. So I'm at the moment uh, doing um, motif, traditional uh, Dusun and Murut motif. I'm compiling them because I, I did an exhibition at the Kuching Borneo Cultures Museum last month uh, with uh, an exhibition called Serumpun with Borneo Lab and Glasgow School of Art, mm-hmm. funded by the wonderful uh, British Council. They're very, very supportive of this kind of work. Um, so I'm compiling that. So that will be my next book. It's, it's all a series of Kampung legacy because I believe these are all the legacy from a Kampung. I actually, before that, I actually started on um, uh, textiles of the designs of uh, uh, motif for Sabahan textiles. And then last year, I stumbled onto Langkawi. I went to this beautiful place, Bonton Langkawi, where there's all these uh, uh, traditional uh, Malay houses made of uh, timber with no nails (laughs) and absolutely beautiful. So again historical and and I I love anything which has history but I just do it in my own way which is to draw so I've got these sort of three books all sort of hanging uh, and <laughs> whichever one I can finish first and I'll finish that first yeah okay all right but you know the your the book uh, Kampung Legacy uh, the baskets one of course um sorry a journal of Sabah's traditional baskets is available um how can folks get their hands on that yep the apparently the shipment just came now so go down his a uh, whole bunch of them but uh, Ilham uh, the Ilham shop, Ilham gallery shop, has some two lit books. Okay. Uh, and then you can get it on Shopee. A friend of mine who has a little online shop, bookshop, uh, Bundusan Books, mm-hmm. you can get it there too. Okay, excellent. Yeah. So just uh, just search for the title of that book, which is The Kampung Legacy, A Journal of Sabah's Traditional Baskets. But of course, you know, the exhibition is still ongoing, which is uh, called Bakul, Everyday Baskets from Sabah. That's happening over at the Go Down, uh, which is in 11 Lorong Ampang. It's just off uh, Jalan Bukit Nanas. Uh, it's on until the 23rd of February. Do go and catch it if you can. It's a wonderful exhibition. And uh, just follow the Go Down folks on social media if you'd like to see all the different events that are taking place over the weekends and you know throughout the exhibition. My thanks again to my guests. I've been speaking to Jennifer P. Lingi, artist, author, architect, former director of Sabah Art Gallery. If you miss any part of our conversation today, you can always search for the podcast at bfm.my slash learn or you can find it on the BFM app. This has been Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.